Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Dom Nichols, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss how Russia is seeking to rejoin the United Nations Human Rights Council and unpick the operational art of conducting warfare with a former deputy commander of NATO. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 26th of September, one year and 214 days since the full-scale invasion began. Today, I'm joined by Assistant Common Editor Francis Durnley, fresh from the United Nations, and our guest today, former Deputy Supreme Ally Commander Europe, retired General Sir Richard Shireff. I started by giving the latest updates from the front lines. Let's go down to the Odessa region, and in particular the port infrastructure down there that was hit again overnight, 12 Russian caliber cruise missiles, two P-800 Onyx anti-ship cruise missiles, and then another 24 Shahid 131 and 136 drones fired at the ports. Uh, Ukraine Air Defense say they shot down 11 caliber of the 12, and all 24 Shahids. However, that obviously leaves one one caliber and the two anti-ship missiles that got through. So far, reports are that two people were killed there. Then slightly further to the west and south, another port down there on the Danube, which obviously is the river that separates Ukraine from Romania, a NATO member, obviously. Uh, let's look at the ports there of Ismail and on Olivka, uh, Olivka being about 20 k's further, further west. Two people injured and dozens of vehicles damaged in Olivka. That's just across from the Romanian border. Firefighters fighting the fires all night, seen hosing down the remains of a number of trucks, shipping containers. The ferry crossing from Olivka, that's about a kilometre south of the actual town itself, or the main infrastructure of the town, is apparently out of operation this morning. Romanian TV have put out images of the strikes over the border. Uh, we see a port building, storage facilities, and over 30, 30 trucks and cars, all damaged in the two-hour attack. That was uh, from the regional governor, Ole Kipa. Now, Ukraine's Air Force said Russia had attacked the area with 38 Shahid drones, of which 26 were shot down. But obviously, they're still going for the port infrastructure. And uh, that's all part of the whole the whole war on war on hunger, if you like, war on the grain pulled out of the Black Sea deal in, in July. So they're still going after the port infrastructure there. 
There have been other strikes across the country, particularly in the south, including in Hezon, where civilians were killed. But then up into the east in the Donetsk region. So let's start with Klischivka, so about 5k south of Bakhmut, and Marinka, which is 10k west of Donetsk, so about a further 60k south southwest of Klischivka. A number of Russian counterattacks there. In recent weeks, Ukraine has been pushing on, retaking territory there, particularly to the south of Bakhmut. Russia very keen not to allow that to happen, mainly because of the symbology of Bakhmut, having fought for it so hard and proclaimed such a success last year. Elsewhere, and somewhat surprisingly, Ukraine's Special Operations Forces Command made a public statement yesterday saying that Friday's strike on the Russian Black Sea Fleet headquarters in Sevastopol killed Admiral Viktor Sokolov, who's Russia's Black Sea Fleet commander. They say it also killed another 34 Russian officers and injured 105. Very specific numbers there. We think it was storm shadow. From footage we've seen and we've put on our website show two missiles striking the building. So at least two, two missiles, probably storm shadow. The fact it happened in daylight and whilst this meeting was going on is very, very good intelligence, I would suggest. And it, it points to some, something, somebody on the ground down there that's, that's obviously cued that. Now, interestingly, Viktor Sokolov, the Black Sea Fleet commander that they, that Ukraine are publicly saying was killed in that strike, he's popped up this morning, albeit it didn't say an awful lot, on the um, on the Russian MOD on a big Zoom meeting. That's that news in the last hour. I think this is probably just you know, fakery. I mean, it's real footage, I imagine, of, of some time ago. But they are trying to refute that he's uh, that he's dead. I mean, it'd be a lot easier if he gave a live a live broadcast from Sevastopol. But um, they're putting him out on uh, they're putting social media out with sort of screenshots of the Russian MOD Zoom meeting with him attending. I think we should be very cautious of that. Now, separately, up into the north, the border region where Ukraine meets uh, meets Russia, and Russia has been increasing the density of its minefields in Belgorod. So this is inside Russia, increasing the density of, of minefields along the border area there. I said it yesterday about Russia demolishing what was left of its Black Sea fleet headquarters, but it bears repeating. Nothing says your attack on Ukraine is going absolutely to plan quite like laying defensive minefields inside your own country. But then I'm no master strategist. I'm sure it's all part of Putin's genius plan. But I'll take a break there because we need to, we've got to, got to crack on. Francis, welcome, welcome back from the US and from New York in particular. I didn't see you before you uh, headed off up there. You've got an interesting story there about how, about the Human Rights Council. What can you tell us? Thanks, Tom. Yes, good to see you this morning after we parted ways in Washington. I am going to start with the UN, as you say, fresh in, as it is in my mind after reporting from there last week. Now, incredibly, the BBC has obtained a copy of a proposal Russia is circulating to UN members asking for their support to rejoin the UN Human Rights Council that it was expelled from last April after the full-scale invasion. So Russian diplomats are apparently seeking to get their country re-elected to the council for a fresh three-year term. The vote will take place next month, involving all 193 members of the General Assembly in New York. Now, in the document seen by the BBC, Russia promises to find, quote, adequate solutions for human rights issues, the Russian phrase, and seeks to stop the council becoming, again, the Russian saying, instrument that serves political wills of one group of countries. Now, that's understood to be a reference to the West, of course. Now, the BBC is saying that diplomats there are seeing Russia campaign aggressively, offering small countries grain and arms in return for their votes. And as such, they said it's not entirely impossible 
that Russia could indeed rejoin the council. Now, suffice to say, this is an attempt by Moscow to return to the international institutions it has been ostracised from. The reason that could well succeed is not only due to the bribery, but also, I would argue, the willingness of many countries to turn a blind eye to known Russian atrocities in order to enable their own agenda. I spoke last week about the anger among many countries in the UN about the makeup of the Security Council. And any country that is willing to listen and push for reform is likely to receive support in key votes. Though I don't personally believe that it would be in Russia's interests at all to discuss reform of the UN Security Council, it would be a risk of their position being eroded further. Nevertheless, Russia is willing to peddle narratives about being one of the insurgents within the UN, being against the status quo uh, in many aspects. And I say that is not an unappealing message to many members of the UN. Now, I conducted several more interviews whilst I was at that institution, one of which was with the president of Malawi, which you'll hear later but also with an official working on Ukraine and two seasoned UN watchers. Understanding how the UN operates is critical to understanding these kind of votes and the Russian strategy for gaining re-entry to the top table. So we will return and continue to return to this issue of the UN. Now, staying in politics, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago the significance of the upcoming election taking place in Slovakia this week. Anton Spysach of the Tony Blair Institute here in Britain has offered some interesting reflections on this on Twitter, calling it one of the most consequential elections in the country's 30-year history, with ramifications for the EU, Ukraine and the wider West. So for context, as we've discussed, Slovakia's centre-right coalition was a major backer of Ukraine. It became the second of Kyiv's allies to provide MiG-29 fighter jets, for instance. Yet if the polls are correct, Robert Fico, the former prime minister who held power between 20, 2006 to 10 and again from 2012 to 20, will most likely win Saturday's election. And he has been highly critical of EU and NATO support for Ukraine, claiming that the conflict is a proxy between Russia and the US and seeing Putin's invasion largely as a reaction to US provocations. He's pledged to stop sending military aid to Kyiv and opposes EU sanctions. If the election is won by Fico, he will likely need to form a coalition. But centrist progressive Slovakia and smaller parties have ruled out coalition with him, leaving him options that include his former protégé, Peter Pellegrini, who's polling about 12 to 15%, and a third partner, either a far-right party called Respublica or an ethno-nationalist party called SNS. This could have major implications, as I say, with Slovakian foreign policy moving closer to Viktor Orban in Hungary. Until now, elections in Europe have not seriously impacted support for Ukraine. Look at what happened in Finland, for example. Yet this would be an early example of what Putin feels is inevitable, a gradual shift to opposition parties less favourable to the policies of their predecessors, including on Ukraine, the US remaining the key one, of course, in the international sphere. Now, two other stories I just wanted to touch on. Listeners may be aware of a row that has broken out following President Zelensky's impromptu visit to Canada when a 98-year-old Ukrainian-Canadian man who fought in a German Nazi unit during World War II received a standing ovation in the Canadian Parliament when senior figures didn't realise 
who he was and his past associations. It's a hugely embarrassing incident and it's a gift, frankly, to Russia, who have long claimed in their propaganda that the West is backing Nazis in Kyiv. This is inaccurate, as we've discussed many times, but stories like this are easy wins for them. And it risks ruptures within the Western alliance. A Polish government minister has launched a bid to extradite this individual, saying, and I quote, in view of the scandalous events in the Canadian parliament, which involved honouring in the presence of President Zelensky, a member of the criminal Nazi SS, I have taken steps towards the possible extradition of this man to Poland. Jewish groups have also pointed out that this individual was part of an SS unit of Ukrainian volunteers responsible for war crimes, including against Jews and Poles, involved in the massacres of around 850 ethnic Poles, which before the war in this area was part of Poland, but now lies within the borders of Ukraine. The man himself was among around 600 members of the unit who were allowed to settle in Canada after the war. He is now a dual Ukrainian-Canadian citizen. Now, we've touched on this issue in the past, namely how in, the world, in World War II there were Ukrainian nationalists who believed their best chance to free themselves from the Soviet Union was by fighting for Germany. Others were forced to serve, though not in volunteer units such as this one. It is important to remember, however, that these people were a minority. So an attempt to use these individuals as a means of smearing the whole of Ukraine as Nazis is simply wrong. Uh, But the crimes this individual is accused of are unspeakable. And it is very much right that serious questions are being asked of those who brought him into the parliament and have embarrassed Canada in this way. Now, lastly, very briefly, we've discussed the Pope many times on this podcast, most recently in the upset that he caused when he praised imperialist Russian figures to a youth group in St. Petersburg. Well, he's made another intervention, this time complaining about countries pulling back from giving weapons to Ukraine in an apparent rebuke of the Polish government. So he suggested that some countries were playing games with Ukraine by first providing weapons and then apparently backing out of their commitments. He told journalists, quote, I've seen now that some countries are pulling back and aren't giving weapons. This will start a process with a martyrdom is the Ukrainian people, certainly. And this is bad. We cannot play with the martyrdom of the Ukrainian people. We have to help resolve things in ways that are possible. This is obviously an attack on Poland, deciding last week, of course, to extend a ban on Ukrainian grain imports, shaking Kyiv's relationship with a neighbour that has been one of its staunchest allies. And one can read a lot into the Pope's intervention, an attempt to repair some of the damage done to Kyiv by the remarks I just referenced, or perhaps a sincere intervention on moral grounds. Either way, it is being welcomed by Ukraine's allies this morning. Yet, given the perception of flip-flopping of the Vatican and the work of its special envoy to talk to all parties about a potential solution to the conflict, there are many who think that the Vatican is not a steadfast Ukrainian ally, but would support an end to this war tomorrow, even if it meant Russia retaining some territory. They have their own relationships with the Orthodox Church to think of. So there's lots going on in the political realm, Dom, and apologies for my voice being two octaves lower. I think I'm still recovering from the jet lag. Quote, unquote, jet lag, not the uh, BA business class trolley that came around. (laughs) If only. Anyway, thanks, Francis. Great to have you back. Now, I'm delighted to say that we are joined by uh, former 
British Army Officer General Sir Richard Shireff, former Deputy Supreme Allied Commander Europe, as I said, so the, the Deputy uh, Head of the military side of NATO, not the political bit with Jens Stoltenberg on that side, but the military bit down in um, down in Mons in Belgium. Now an author and commentator. Richard, delighted to have you on. There's There's so much going on at the moment and talking from a Ukrainian perspective, we've got the land action in the south and the east. There's the stuff happening in the Black Sea, not only the, the sort of sinking ships, but also the whole grain deal. We've got drone strikes in Moscow, partisan activity across the occupied regions. Can you help us make sense of it all and explain how all these actions are related and coordinated, if you like, through the practice which is generally the preserve only of very senior commanders of operational art. Richard, good afternoon. Welcome to the pod. Thank you. Thank you, Dom. And, and it's, a, it's a pleasure to be with you. I've listened to, to, to your podcast for many hours, tramping around the place with my dogs, and uh, I really rate what you have to say. So it's, it's, it's great to be able to contribute in a small way. Operational art. Well, I think we're really talking here about the the way, in a sense, you link a series of tactical battles to a strategic objective is operational art. Uh, It's that operational level of war. Winning the war is strategy. Winning the battle is tactical, is the tactics. And it's, it's the bit in between, really. And I think the Ukrainians have given us a real lesson in operational art and design. We saw last year with the success they demonstrated First, with soaking up the Russian attacks, the Battle of, of Kiev, the success northeast of Kharkiv, followed by the liberation of Kherson, in a sense, broadcasting the liberation of Kherson to suck the Russians north and then punching in the south. And I think what we're seeing now is similar, in a sense. I think it's been very tricky, very difficult. They are facing about the most difficult thing you can do in war, which is to break into well-defended positions. But I think all that we're seeing demonstrates they've thought through, firstly, what is their end state? Where do they want to be? Defeat of the Russians. They've thought through the Russian center of gravity. What is the Russian source of strength, which, if attacked, is going to really un- unpick the Russian, the Russian war effort and Russian, Russian defense? And I think they're thinking through very carefully how you link, they're linking the battles up, up in the east around Bakhmut, which appear to be designed to attrit the Russians, to suck them in, the Russians having expended so much effort to capture it. So the Russian they can't give it up easily, so they've got to find ways of defending up there, making it more difficult as they achieve, the Ukrainians achieve success in the south to making it difficult for the Russians to move reserves around quickly. And then in the south, clearly massive difficulties trying to break through those positions, particularly without air power. So they've had to do it the Ukrainian way, painstakingly, infantry-led, clearing mines not dissimilar to sappers at Al-Alamein in 1942 by night, inching forward, clearing mine lanes, but slowly, 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 unpicking Russian capabilities, uh, targeting Russian artillery and kept through counter-battery fire, targeting Crimea, targeting the bridges running north out of Crimea, hitting the Black Sea Fleet headquarters, a major strategic success, I would argue, all of which designed to make it easier for the Ukrainians to get closer to Crimea and then to start targeting that. 
Now, T.E. Lawrence, he of Arabia fame, said uh, nine-tenths of tactics are certain and taught in books, but the irrational tenth is like a kingfisher flashing across the pool, and that is the test of generals. How do generals, how did you best prepare yourself, themselves, for that test? Well, I think that that quote from T.E. Lawrence, not a soldier, and what is meaning by nine-tenths is taught in schools is really the, the understanding of the science of war. The science of war is the stuff that you've got to do. It's about logistics. It's about movement of large formations. It's about procedures and tactics and, and drills at, a, at, at every level, from, from division down to platoon or core level. It's about understanding the processes and procedures. But it's all about, it's that science of war which creates the opportunity. And there's every campaign, there's an opportunity, which if you can seize it, changes the balance. And I would argue that after the liberation of Kherson last November, there was an opportunity, which if the Ukrainians had been able to seize it, could have changed the dynamic completely. Why weren't they able to seize it? because they didn't have the kit, they didn't have the equipment, they didn't have the support, the ammunition, because the West and NATO had been dilatory and slow in really turning on the taps. So an opportunity missed. And then I've got to create another opportunity. And, and as I say, it's that the nine-tenths is about creating the opportunities for that kingfisher to flash across the pool. And how do you, as a very senior commander, how do you balance that requirement to control and set timetables and be here by this date and have that amount of days of supply and fuel and ammunition and water and all that kind of stuff with allowing people their their own heads and their minds and their initiative how do you balance all that how all the different parts of the orchestra how do you turn it from the the bit when the orchestra is tuning up and it's a right old mess into a a beautiful sound that that is able to work to its strength and and be conducted by the commander I think you put your finger on a really important point, which is that it, that creating a culture where initiative is encouraged, supported, to allow the man or woman on the ground the opportunity to, to use their initiative to seize the opportunities. Famously, the German army called it Auftragstaktik. It's called Mission Command in the British Army. And it's about generating that culture which allows that flexibility it's about ensuring that your people really understand the intent in British Army parlance, understand the commander's intent two levels up, and ensuring that people have the resources to do the job. But it's also about trust, and trust takes time. It comes from living and training and working together over years and building up that esprit, that sense of being part of a band of brothers and sisters. And it's that that allows, when the moment comes, the opportunity to be seized. But at the same time, as you so rightly say, it's complex stuff. It's ensuring the ways and the means, the, the logistics, the movement, the sequencing of actions, because you can't do everything all the time because you don't have the resources. So you've got to, you've got to husband your resources. You've got to prioritize to meet the needs of the moment. And that's where the design comes in. But the design has got to be flexible. As I say, you think right to left. You've got to work out where you want to get to. You work back along a sign. Then you've got to work out what it is in order to achieve your vision or your end state. 
what objectives have got to be achieved? I think of that vision or entity almost like a large building in which there are a series of doors, which are objectives. And from each of those objectives, there's a pathway or a line of operation which runs back to where you are now. And to advance on those, or to move forward on those pathways, you really need, you've got to satisfy a number of decisive conditions, but you can't do it all at once. And that's where the sequencing and the planning comes in. But then, of course, it's one thing to plan, it's another thing to act, to make it happen. And of course, the enemy gets a vote, famously. It's von Moltke who said every plan survives contact until the enemy gets a look in. And that's that's where wargaming and, 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 and up against a uh, essentially a red team, which picks, unpicks your plan as you go, which allows you to look at where, where you've got to think things through again, ensure you've got reserves in hand and be able to adjust the plan according to what is happening. And it's really, the commander's a bit like a, you know, it's a bit like being a, a helmsman in a, in a yacht or a dinghy. You've got your hand on the tiller and you've got to keep adjusting according to wind and tide and depending on what the enemy's throwing at you. Yes, I, love, I mean, von Molka's No Plan Survives Contact with the Enemy. I prefer Mike Tyson's Everyone Has a Plan Until They Get Punched in the Mouth. But anyway, whilst you're, whilst you're here, if I may, so before I t- somewhat self-indulgently turn to domestic defence considerations, can I just ask you then, if you, you've identified in your analysis, and we're not giving any, away any secrets here, we're not privy to anything the Ukrainians are planning, but if in your eyes the Russian centre of gravity is Crimea, so the centre of gravity being that thing which if you can attack it and deny it to the enemy could fundamentally undermine the other side's whole ability to fight and will to fight. So if Crimea is Russia's centre of gravity, how would you assess the various lines of operation that are going into attacking that and where are they relative to each other? How would you, what report card would you, give, uh, would you give Ukraine at the moment coming into the, uh, the end of this year? I think really positive. And, and I, you know, I think we have to be really impressed by what the Ukrainians are doing. And yes, it's taking time. And I think expectations were built up largely, I'm afraid, by the media beforehand, who just assumed that somehow the Ukrainian offensive would be launched. It would be, it would be, and it would be over in days. It would be another desert storm, shock and awe, done and dusted. It's not like that. As I said earlier, it is so difficult what the Ukrainians are trying to achieve. And it's costly. It's bloody expensive in terms of blood and treasure. And my goodness me, the Ukrainians will be really hurting. And the casualties, and you talked about this yesterday in yesterday's podcast. And we should remember that this is being done by men and women fighting nonstop in the most difficult, intense circumstances. And we have to admire and respect them for it. But on the bigger picture, I think they're doing really well. I think they are, they're clearly up against it. Russia is massive. Russia, Putin has made it very clear that they're not going to give, throw in the towel. And so where the, as they move forward, sucking them in up north uh, on the north and east around Bakhmut, penetrating, dismantling, beginning that slow, slow crumbling battle to break through the Russian positions. Reports of some Ukrainian vehicles moving south of some of the harder defensive positions, but some way short of a sort of a flood breaking through. It's not going to happen quickly. And then I think this deep battle crescendoing and ramping up drones into Moscow, air defense being taken down in Crimea, 
the Kirsch Bridge being hit, not yet destroyed, but they will choose their time and place. The hit against the, the Kilo submarine and, and the landing ship, major, major successes. And of course, this massive hit against the Black Sea Fleet, which is utterly humiliating for Russia. And ultimately, it's going to make it, the, the closer the Ukrainians can get, the more difficult it is going to be for the Russians to hold on to maintain forces in Crimea. Cut those supply lines. And of course, an awful lot comes out of Crimea. There's the linkage between what's going on in Crimea and the Russian ability to support the battle in the uh, Zaporizhia salient as well. Now, as I said, turning to... Um... As you're here, may I just grab some time for you all uh, to look at domestic British defence considerations. You've said in the past you were nearly court-martialed, having spoken out about cuts to the British armed forces. You also said former Prime Minister David Cameron had turned Britain into a semi-pacifist nation. How have things improved since then? Well, I don't doubt the fighting qualities of the ability in any way. and the, I mean, the, ser- the serious quality of the men and women in, in our armed forces at all. I mean, I think they're, they're, they're brilliant. But I'm not sure they're being given the support they need by our political leadership. And what I see at a time when the West NATO is facing a potentially existential fight, it's existential for Ukraine, but also this war... We should remember, it's not just a war against Ukraine, it's a war against the West, it's a war against NATO, it's a war against Ukraine joining the West. And the only way to ensure this war does not turn into something much, much worse that engulfs us all is through effective deterrence. And effective deterrence means military capability and strength. And it means communicating. So when I see continued reductions in the size of the of, of, of our armed forces, the army being reduced at a time when this is a major land war in Europe, notwithstanding all the new technical gizmos that 21st century conflict brings to the battlefield. I think we have to remember that mass has a place that if you don't have much punch, you're not going to carry much weight on the battlefield and you're not going to send a signal that you're ready for the worst case. Now, there's been a lot of talk lately about reform to the UN, the UN Security Council in particular. We didn't start that conversation, but we got a nice line on it from John Kirby, the spokesman for the uh, US National uh, Security Council, um, ahead of President Biden raising it in New York last week. But in any potential future UN and Security Council reform, do you think Britain still deserves its place at the top table? Well, I guess that's a good case for the for the uh, for the rest of the Security Council and the top table. But if Britain wants to remain a player on the top table, Britain's got to do more than talk. It's the war. It's the talk softly, but carry a big stick. And Britain, I'm afraid, carries an increasingly little stick. Yeah, and just finally, if I may, we've got a new Defence Secretary here in the UK, uh, Grant Shapps. What do you think should be uh, top of his inbox? Prepare for the worst case. Prepare for war because that's the way to prevent war or prevent Britain being engulfed in a war. Really look long and hard at the gaps in capability. Can this country's armed forces really fight a war? And if not, do something about them. But I would also add to that, look after the people in the armed forces. Look after their married quarters, their service accommodation, all of which, frankly, is in a dire state and needs some serious work. Because if you don't look after your people, you won't have anybody. 
Richard, this is Francis. Thank you very much for your time today. I've got a few questions as well, if I may. I just want to start on this theme of Europe and Britain rearming or not, as the case may be. How do you account for the failures of rearmament outside of Britain, but within the European context, specifically Germany, France and many other nations who talk the talk but haven't really walked the walk? How do you explain that? It's about political will. And you're absolutely right. Germany, France, Italy. I mean, I think on the plus side, look carefully at, uh, at our allies in, in the Baltic states. I mean, I was in the Czech Republic recently. They're really putting a lot of, lot of effort into increasing their capability because they really recognize that they are in the firing line. And I just don't think there's been the sort of same mental jump in this country, certainly not in Germany. I mean, the so-called Zeitenwender has, has really achieved nothing in terms of increasing the German defense budget. This year's defense budget in Germany is less than it was in 2022, despite Schultz's promise that it would be increasing year on year and meeting the 2% requirement. So at the end of the day, it's about political will, and political will comes from the fact that people are not concerned, they're not frightened, they're not interested. And I would add to that is they think that they can rely on US support indefinitely. And the fact is that if we as the collective West were willing to acknowledge the fact that there was a danger that the US may pull out of this war. I, my view on this is slightly altered from being in the US, which is one for another uh, subject of conversation. But let's say the US were to withdraw, then, the US, then Europe would be, kept, would be caught with its pants down. And the fact is we have not uh, been arming in the way that we should have in preparation for a possible extension of this war or expansion of this war into into European uh, territories. But just staying on the strategic picture, Richard, you mentioned uh, T.E. Lawrence. I want to ask you about him again in a moment. But what other strategic historical parallels come to mind when you think of this war? Career is sometimes spoken about. But from your perspective, what history jumps out at you based on your experience? Well, not so much my experience, but from reading and study and military history, which is in many ways the sort of underpinning of any military profession, I think. But I think that, I think Italy, 1943 to 45, is worth thinking about. Clearly the terrain and everything is fundamentally different. But there was a campaign which involved a series of counteroffensives to achieve the ultimate victory. And I think that's what we're, that's what the Ukrainians are facing. This was never going to be over, over with one counteroffensive. It's going to, and from the start, I mean, I was in Kiev in April and they were saying then, this is going to need a series of counteroffensives, each of which is going to see, need the same resourcing, the same levels of equipment, the same ammunition, the training, the support from NATO and the West to achieve the ultimate victory. And this is going to take time. And that's what so that that Italian campaign was a hell of a slog up the Italian peninsula from 43 to 45. And gradually the operational art, the understanding of operational art became more and more well practiced, more sophisticated, the jointery. uh, And you can see it beginning to really and then, of course, it achieved its aim at the end. But it took time. And I think this is very similar. This is going to take time and it's going to take strategic patience from the West And it's going to require us all to really knuckle down and provide that long-term support for Ukraine. 
And of course, one could argue that one of the reasons the Italian campaign is not in the public popular consciousness is because it was a slog and a very difficult campaign. It didn't have those dramatic breakthroughs, those huge successes that perhaps we saw with the Battle of Normandy, which leads to films and books and everything else, whilst the Italian campaign, as you say, was as important but a very different style of warfare and one that we're not really accustomed to. Uh, But one last question for me, Richard, if I may. You mentioned T.E. Lawrence, of course, one of the great commanders of irregular forces. We've spoken a lot on this podcast about conventional warfare and how it's really seen as a a conventional war in many ways on European soil. But I wanted to hear your perspective on the use of irregular forces and irregular tactics too, if I may. Well, there's clearly a lot going on. And it's going to be some time when the history of the campaign is finally written that we really find out and understand what is happening. But you only have to look at look at the news, as I do. And it's the attacks on the, the unexplained explosions in Russia, the unexplained explosions in Crimea. There's clearly partisan activity going on in Russian-occupied Ukraine, and clearly stuff going on in Russia. And I've got no, no particular perspective on it, except that it's there. But I think the important point is that it's sequenced and thought through in, in line with the conventional stuff as well. Uh, and it's all about sowing confusion, undermining, the cap- undermining Russian capabilities, undermining the Russian ability to fight and the Russian will to fight. And if you hit at command and control facilities and capabilities and headquarters and you hit at logistics and arms dumps, or it's all part of that deep battle designed to undermine those in the close battle. Thanks both. We're going to start um, wrapping it up there. We'll come to, to final thoughts now. I'll say a little, then uh, then come to, to Francis and then invite uh, Richard as our guest to have the last last word. But I would just like to echo what we've what we've heard today or try and draw it down into the the context at the moment that, that a lot of people are saying, oh, the, the counteroffensive is going too slowly or it's not achieving anything or it's this or it's that. Plus, people are saying, oh, this is, uh, we, we thought this was going to be over by the summer and we're about to go into winter and the, the ground's going to get boggy and what have you. I mean, this is, all the activity you see in Ukraine, well, not all, but, but the vast majority of it is on an absolute shoestring. There are not the missiles, not the artillery shells, not the personnel in droves that can replace those that, that are lost at the front. So every every shell missile that is fired, every person committed to the battle, is is very seriously thought through and considered and decided when and where to, to best use that resource. The deal, and Richard may have a different view, but I, I always sort of very sort of took the view that the, the deal was as an officer. You don't um, you, you don't unnecessarily risk your people's lives in peacetime and you don't give them away cheaply in wartime so i think that i think that's what we are seeing now and so every time we see an ammo dump go up or a command and control center go up or an air defense system in crimea or partisan activity you know these aren't just happening because it's a war and we go and do this sort of stuff try and see the lines of operation as has been outlined here and all those lines of operation that might meander some might go straighter than others but they all point at that Centre of gravity, undermine that in the enemy and the whole thing crumbles. Now, you can debate what you think that centre of gravity is. It looks as if, as Richard suggests, that that Crimea, the holding of Crimea is Russia's centre of gravity. So everything is done with that in mind. And I think if we take that perspective and just sort of step out a little bit from the trenches and say, oh, they've only taken another 400 metres today. You know, if we zoom out a little bit and see everything pushing towards that front, I think the thing, I think this war 
in its whole, in its entirety, will come into much sharper focus. And we will also see that it's not going to end quickly, that we are, now that the lines are somewhat solidified, it's sort of Churchill 1942, that this is not the end, this is not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. And I'll just ask you to bear that one in mind, because that's how I look at it. I might be wrong, but that's how I look at it. Anyway, let's go to uh, final thoughts. Francis, please. haven't heard from you for a little while, so uh, I'm expecting an absolute barnstormer of a final thought. (laughs) Well, no pressure, Dom. As long-suffering listeners who follow me on Twitter will know, during my downtime in America, I visited many presidential monuments in Washington and New York, far grander and more interesting than those to our prime ministers here, it must be said, not least because of the emphasis they put on words. So many include extracts of their speeches, chiselled in marble, which breathe life into the statues and leave the visitor with a greater sense of that president's personality and beliefs. The Lincoln Memorial, for instance, fits the entire Gettysburg Address on one wall. Now, we often reflect about leadership on this podcast. And when I went off on a tangent about my second favourite president, Ulysses S. Grant, many of you wrote in asking who the first and third are. And I promised I would share them once I was back. Now, it should go without saying that favourite president is very different to greatest president, just as your favourite person on earth may not be the greatest person you know. It is a truth pretty universally acknowledged that Lincoln was the greatest. And I would agree with that summation in terms of what he achieved, saving the union and emancipation and the political genius he exhibited in order to achieve it. Yet I try not to measure historical figures by their specific achievements, like the passing of a certain act or winning of a certain war, than I do their skills or personality traits, which, if applied today, might help us in the same way we commonly apply aspects of Churchill to President Zelensky. That's especially true of my number one, which I'll reveal in a second, but it is also true of my number two, Grant. Now, Grant was no great political manager like Lincoln, yet he was a good man whose virtue imprinted himself on his country. They say that high office always reveals one's fatal flaws, and so it did for Grant and his reputation. Yet even his flaw was a virtue in another's hands. He was too trusting of his friends, who defrauded both his presidency and him personally. Beyond this, though, he was a superb tactician, fearless in battle, who, despite the horrors he witnessed, remained deeply empathetic to all men, including his enemies, and especially remarkable for the time, animals. He couldn't bear to see horses suffering cruelty, for instance. He's also a family man, devoted to his wife, so much so that when he was away from her, he would drink, which I think makes him all the more human. As a president, he sought to unify the North and the South, enfranchising former slaves and punishing those who sought to deprive them of the rights that he had helped secure for them on the battlefield. He also, crucially, did all of this out of a sense of duty, not the pursuit of power. If only more of our leaders had power thrust upon them through their virtues rather than only attained through ruthless pursuit. Now, I could go on about Grant, and please forgive my lingering, but I feel raw about this subject and his neglect. In New York last week, I visited his tomb, and in contrast to the Lincoln Memorial, or the many others I visited, I was the only one there. And how a man once lauded as the greatest American since Washington and Lincoln can be so forgotten, I find very sad and especially regrettable in these divided times. No such neglect for my third favourite, Thomas Jefferson. There's nothing I can add that hasn't already been said. 
He was a revolutionary, but not utopian. The Declaration of Independence he authored appeals to high ideals, but also the specifics of the given moment in time. It has one foot in the material, one foot in the abstract, one tangible, one dreamlike. And that, for me, is the essence of America. John Adams, the second president, and in many ways Jefferson's great rival, was less idealistic about human nature than Jefferson, in a way that I find attractive. Yet America would be a lesser place without Jefferson's dose of idealism. He was also a beautiful writer, a deep intellect and a vivacious reader, but also fundamentally flawed, not least on the matter of slavery, which he himself acknowledged was unjustifiable. To me, he encapsulates America in all of its paradoxes. So who is my number one? I had many guesses from listeners. Eisenhower, who I agree deserves much higher praise than he receives and whose monument in Washington is seriously underrated. FDR, Wilson, Washington. Well, I'm happy to put you all out of your misery. My favourite is one for whom this anecdote reveals much about him that I find appealing. You go to the White House, you shake hands with the president and hear him talk. And then you go home to ring the sheer personality out of your clothes. Larger than life in every way, a superb orator, a fearless soldier, a brave explorer, an inspiring and far-sighted leader, an author of 35 books. Yet also vulnerable, someone who lost his wife and mother on the same night as a young man, and who never fully recovered. It can only be Theodore Roosevelt. In New York, I visited his birthplace, which exhibits the bloodied shirt he was wearing when he got shot, only to continue speaking for 90 minutes. His critics dub him an imperialist, but I think that's far too simplistic if one looks at the entirety of his career. After all, he won the Nobel Peace Prize for negotiating an end to the Russo-Japanese War in 1905, a conflict with a lot of echoes of the war in Ukraine potentially for Russia. Rather, I think the key to understanding Roosevelt is him acknowledging the global role America was destined to assume. I think all of us desire to serve or be led by such a person. Part of the reason why we are so inspired by Zelensky, a man seemingly out of time. So it's not just him I envy, it's the ideal of democratic government led by such a figure. One who can get things done through sheer will and weight of character. A democracy moulded to be able to achieve bold improvement and foresight, something that seems increasingly impossible in the modern age. As I said last week, strolling around Washington, it was as if it was built for giants, matching the ambition of the country itself. One could say the same for New York, perhaps the only city I know which looks better from below than from above, the only way to appreciate its scale and grandeur. Despite much of the despair one reads and hears about, about the state of America now, I find it impossible to visit such places and not retain a sense of optimism about what human beings can achieve. So... Thank you for bearing with me and for your patience on giving my answer. But thank you most of all to all of those listeners who made us feel so welcome. Well, I do echo that. And uh, Teddy Roosevelt, well, that's me, lost a fiver. Thanks, Francis. Richard, as our guest, would you like the final word? Final word. This war has got to be won by Ukraine. The more the West supports Ukraine, the more kit that we can give, the more ammunition that we can give, the more training we can give, the quicker the Ukrainians will win this war. If they don't, the implications are massive. There are many who think, for example, or say China's the long-term threat. If Ukraine succeeds, 
President Xi will think very carefully about anything, any adventure in Taiwan. This will have massive implications about the war. And not least, of course, the longer this war goes on, the longer the human, the worse the human cost. So the quicker it finishes, the better. And the only way to finish this war quickly is to get behind Ukraine in a thoroughly wholehearted way, which we've yet to really do. Thank you. And thank you to all our listeners who pointed out the lateness of yesterday's upload of our podcast. It was due to a kink in the Spotify system, which has since been resolved. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it's released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk we do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Giles Gear and Elliot Lampitt. Executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.